really rough story, but fun movie. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. This month, we've been discussing movie musicals. We've talked about a variety of different films. But today, like, we haven't done this in a bit, it feels like. Our final episode of the month is a director who has worked extensively within the movie musical genre. And this was an interesting kind of debate because it was between two people that we were going to pick. And that was Stanley Dodden, who we ended up picking today, or Vincent Minnelli, who we might get a few mentions in this episode. But yeah, so we've talked about my musicals this month. Thomas, can you give everyone a recap on like what we've discussed regarding the genre this month? Yeah, something we've, we've definitely gotten into is kind of the difference between uh, jukebox musicals and uh, I don't know, what, what would be the other... Traditional musical, I guess. Yeah, traditional but, musical. Um, like, yeah, traditional musical. We didn't really t- discuss backstage musical. We'll probably discuss it a little bit today. Yeah, and and just the idea of there's there's really two fields of thought within you know if you're breaking down a musical to its to its building blocks is why are these people singing? And there's there's two school of thoughts. There's the performance musical, which oftentimes factors into a jukebox musical, which is someone performing songs within the film and we see that a lot in the early days of movie musicals when they were just these kind of like stage reviews like something like 42nd street is a story and a backstage musical mixed in with musical numbers that are being performed for an audience for practice for rehearsals uh that sort of thing as opposed to a uh a a traditional musical i guess or you know the 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 like a non-diegetic musical um, <laughs> but just this idea and this and this is something more people are familiar with and it's for a lot of people it's it could be the reason that you say like i don't like musicals but this idea that the the music is is being uh presented as some sort of inner or outer monologue for the characters and it's just this idea that you become so overwhelmed with your emotions that you hit a certain point where you have to sing and dance. And that is the, the key conceit of most Broadway musicals. Yeah. We'll talk today about kind of it slowly became Hollywood musicals as well, but just this kind of idea that like, this is the song that is in my heart and I have to, to let it out. And that's yeah. where a lot of people, they go, Oh, I don't like musicals. Cause how do, how do the, how do these people all know the same choreography? How do they all know the same lyrics? And it's yeah. like, you know, that's just that's what you have to understand. This is everyone's emotions presenting themselves through song and dance. Yeah, it's interesting because when when I I was reading up on a book for today's episode, I haven't done this in a while. It feels like of reading a a, a large biography on a director we're covering, um, Dancing on the Ceiling, Stanley Don Stanley Donnan and his movies and. They they have similar conversations of when they're interviewing Stanley about like it was the the hard part is already always figuring out how to like transition to them singing and mm-hmm. for it not to be like a big jump it had yep. to naturally feel it had a it had to have a natural feel to it when you go from talking into singing and and he actually talks about how like like how Fosse does it in cabaret um, and how they would do it in singing in the rain, how they would use kind of ways of like, I think the example he uses Moses supposes 
where it mm-hmm. starts off in this in the dialogue and it slowly transitions into the song was kind of the idea as a way to kind of like get an audience into that specific piece of music. Um, we've also talked about, uh, which I don't know if I'll come into play that much today, but about the idea of, of uh, adapting Broadway musicals into film musicals uh, and Hollywood movie musicals and how to like make it, make it like worth the, uh, the reason or make it, make it give a good reason of why it's being transitioned to that different medium mm-hmm. and not just tape the Broadway show, but to open it up um, and to kind of go outside uh, the proscenium arch in a way and give it a, a new life and make it feel cinematic. Yeah. And, how, how is the camera going to add to yes. the experience of, of this, especially and, because it, 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 you are taking away this aspect of, of live performance, you know, these, yeah. these, a lot of times these songs are taped in a recording booth. You're not hearing these actors sing them live to you. And so yeah. you have, you, you are taking away part of that musical experience. So you, so you have to add something back. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. And I, we didn't, I didn't plan this or like plan this out this month this way, but that was a big reason. Or Stanley Donnan is an interesting p- person to talk about regarding that because the first movie he, he co-directed with Gene Kelly was On the Town, and that was a Broadway adaptation. And mm-hmm. I, to kind of like go into the like thoughts of Stanley Donnan on, on this episode and kind of what we're getting to, to start with, like, the big thing I'm kind of reading and it's that he doesn't give as much credit for, but a lot of historians kind of give him credit for is that he was the one to really open up the musical to where it's not just the backstage musical that like they're out on the streets. They're in New York city and on the town. They're doing these like kind of large scale things and not just isolated to the soundstage, which is what mm-hmm. a lot of people were doing. There's a, there's a, a quote from a film historian, David Thompson, he said, Donnan led the musical in a triumphant and personal direction out of doors. Not only did Donnan dare to stage elaborate routines in real locations, he threw his camera about with the freedom of the studio. Not even Minnelli can rival the fresh air excitement of such sequences. And few can equal his integration of song, dance, and story. So that was his big thing, was how to integrate the music into regular life. Um, yeah. Because that wasn't really that with the Busby Berkeley musicals, it was very still that backstage, like st- like we're putting them on a stage, so they're gonna sing, and it's not gonna feel weird, like it's gonna feel like a performance, like that you would get on the Broadway show stage. Yeah, and we can we can talk about this a little bit more later, but uh, I really don't think any he could have partnered with anyone to do that better than Gene Kelly. I agree, I agree. I, I have some thoughts on 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 Kelly as we get into it. And I know you have some thoughts on Kelly as we get into it. Um, but I guess, so what, what's your takeaway right, right off on the top of this of like, what, cause we watched a good bit of Donnan's films. Don has 28 films. We didn't watch all of them. Uh, <laughs> some are hard to find, but we watched a good bit. We, we watched a lot of his big ones. So what, are, what, what are you kind of feeling about him right now? Just uh, like out of the past week or so of watching his stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very familiar with a lot of his work, obviously, Singing in the Rain is is highly regarded as as one of the greatest, if not the best, yeah. um, movie musical of all time. So, very familiar with him through that. I'm also a, a big fan of Gene Kelly. So, and they collaborated often. So, yeah, and 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 he's one that's that's very interesting because I was also very familiar with his non musical work, specifically 
charade um yeah. which which we'll, we can talk about more this episode is a, is a very fun little thriller um one that's that's i think we might have brought it up on this podcast before but one that gets credited to alfred hitchcock um yeah, quite yeah. often because it's Cary grant and it's got this kind of uh, thriller with like some dark comedy to it yeah and european vibe as well which is very happening in that point with hitchcock with his european yeah. type films yeah, so so he was someone who knew his knew his way around a musical and a non-musical, which was something that was very much needed mm-hmm. at this period. And and I do credit him and Kelly in their collaboration for kind of making the the real jump from to ap- adapting Broadway musicals in the sense yeah. that you know that like like we said this aspect that like I think he and Kelly really were the ones who made it palatable to be like, okay, these, these people are so excited. They're so in love, whatever. They're going to make up this song and dance on the spot. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that obviously they weren't the first people to do that on film. Obviously they weren't the first people to do that in a musical that's been around, you know, that's what opera is. That's what ballet is. But, um, but I, I really do think they were the ones who brought it to legitimacy on Hollywood film yeah and and we'll go into it more uh, a little bit on the backstory of of donnan but uh the big thing that was happening you gotta think is that they, on the town they direct had they co-direct together in 1948 and donnan talks about in the book books written by stephen m silverman i got to pick the book up from uh uh sideshow books in culver city in los angeles go check them out if you're in the area um donnan talks about how like not like even though it had been 18 years since like sound had been put into movies a lot of stuff still hadn't progressed in that time. It's like that. That's why it was so different for them to go record out on the streets and kind of on location, which Don was always pushing um, was that like the sound recordings hadn't progressed at all in that time period. Weirdly. Um, I think at one point he said that the people who were, who had just created, who created the sounds for Tarzan's yells and the early pre-code Tarzan movies were still running the sound department. And they hadn't hadn't changed anything since then. Um, So they, both Kelly and Donnan specifically, really pushed the the boundaries of what you could do uh, cinematically with a musical. Um, Which is very apparent, as we'll we'll talk about as we keep going, uh, in their early work before they ever started directing, like the sequences they created in earlier MGM musical. Cause that's what I got started at is MGM, which was kind of the prime or prime, uh, musical, uh, mm-hmm. studio at this point in the 1940s and into the fifties. Um, but yeah, so what I mean, when I, what I really gathered too with Donnan, um, I do think some of his films are flawed and we'll talk about that as we go. But, uh, the, what the, his use of, uh, like his visuals are amazing. His use of like color, all of his films are very colorful. Yeah. Like even seven brides for seven brothers, which is a very problematic film, like has a <laughs> lot, has a lot of like great co- like co- color with the, with the, with the costume design and, um, and, and the lighting funny face kind of pops out with that in terms of the lighting and visual visual structure of that. Um, the way he uses crane work in a lot of his movies, the big one, the singer in the rain kind of crane up when Gene Kelly's spinning around um, I think his editing um, is very unique, is is very of a of a certain pace uh, in, the, in his musicals and non musicals. There, there's kind of a musicality 
to some of his later stuff um, in terms of his editing. Uh, we'll see if Thomas likes it or not in one of his later <laughs> films. Um, but yeah, and he also just has movie stars. I know this is kind of like weird to always say, but like it's like he worked with like movie stars in this period mm-hmm. of Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, Gene Kelly. So so yeah. Um, do you want to dive into to Stanley Donnan's early beginnings? Let's do it. There's a big part. You might already know this. But there's a big part I've been hiding. I've been trying to hide from you with him. So Stanley Donnan was born on April 13th, 1924 in Columbia, South Carolina. No, I did. I did know that. Dang it. Uh, <laughs> there might be one part you don't know. Uh, okay. He was, bo- he was born to Mordecai Moses Donnan and Helen Cohen Donnan. His father, Morty, was the district manager of a dress shop in the area. His wife, Helen Cohen, was the daughter of a jewelry salesman in town, and her family disapproved of her relationship with Morty because he was poor and uneducated. So against their wishes, Morty and Helen eloped in 1923, a year before Stanley was born. When describing his time living in Columbia, Stanley said, My family and I were Southerners, really, really Southern and really, really American. But he said that Columbia was a sleepy town. It was awful. I hated growing up there, and I couldn't wait to get out. Yeah, yeah. What's the what's the what do they call Columbia? The the screen door to hell, or the back door to hell, or something. <laughs> just it's like just it's so hot, and there's no like water. Like there's one there's a river that runs through Columbia, but there's not like a lake nearby. You're yeah. far from the ocean. You're not up in the mountains yet. It's just like miserably hot. Yes, yeah, about two hours from the from from the uh, from the ocean is what I read in the book. Um, but a lot of this, not just that, but a lot of this dealt with the fact that the Donnan family was Jewish, which was a rarity at the time in South Carolina. Don states he was teased and bullied growing up because of it. But the Donnans had a middle class lifestyle in the town and still were like he they said he don still had friends but it was like the jewish community was very small but very tight-knit he lived in a nice spanish style house that looks very reminiscent still standing by the way in columbia very reminiscent (laughs) to don lockwood's house and sing in the rain it has a very similar style they did this is the part i think i don't know if you'll know uh they did spend most of their summers at the family beach house on Polly's Island. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the main things Don did during his childhood was go to the movies. He said, I'd go every day, and then my father used to come find me after he closed up the dress shop. One afternoon, my father came to get me, but I was watching Flying Down to Rio. I was nine, and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was something as if it was as, it was as if something had exploded inside of me. And the film was a musical. But kind of, it's it's not really it sounds like it's not really a great plot, uh, but what's very important in film history is that it's the first screen pairing of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Oh, yeah. And Don said he could not stop watching Astaire dance. I went back to the theater every day while the picture was playing. I must have seen it at least twenty times during its run in town. Not long after, Don came home at the age of nine and told his parents he wanted to be a tap dancer. His parents thought he was crazy, but said okay. Uh, he soon began taking tap dances in Columbia, and as he got older, his father had him spend summers and living in New York at the because his dad had to travel there a lot for the the dress shop because it was like a it was a chain store in America. Oh, okay. The family would go with him, and his mom actually enrolled him in dance classes in New York during the summer. At the age of sixteen, very young, Stanley finished high school, um, and going against his father's wishes of going to college, Stanley decided to move to New York City. 
because he was afraid to make the jump to California first, even though he wanted to make movies, he decided to do the theater instead. He began working as a dancer on the stage in New York City, and he landed a role in the hit musical Pal Joey, which is directed by famed Broadway director George Abbott. The show's breakout star, however, was Gene Kelly. Mm. However, <clears throat> Stanley said they wouldn't become friends on that musical because he was only in the chorus while Gene was the big star or was the star of the show. Um, while Pal Joy was running, George Abbott cast Stanley in another musical called Best Foot Forward. Uh, the, the choreographer on Best Foot Forward wasn't doing a fantastic job, so he was fired. Um, Abbott convinced Gene Kelly to choreograph the show, even though he was still actually on Pal Joey at the time. And they had a uh, contract negotiations where Kelly's name would be put above the Pal Joey credits. And he would also choreograph this other show that was about to go on Broadway, which is Best Foot Forward. Um, Donnan said, I was the only person Gene was familiar with among the dancers in this new show. So I became his assistant and that's how we got to know each other. Hmm. Um, the show ran for over a year and soon the rights were bought by MGM in, in Hollywood. Uh, Donnan took this as his cue to head to Hollywood and see if he can get a job on the film version of Best Foot Forward. Um, actor and friend Van Johnson got him on the lot of MGM and Stanley went straight to the casting department and said he was in the original production and that he should be in the, in the movie version of it. <laughs> uh, he auditioned and was then signed by MGM because of that. Um, at this point, Kelly had already transitioned to Hollywood and soon began working at MGM. While working there, Kelly was loaned out, as has happened in, in the old Hollywood days, that you'd be loaned out to other studios. Kelly was loaned out to Columbia Studios to do a movie called Cover Girl that was being shot. Kelly had... It was a weird part when, when reading on this. They had shot almost all the musical numbers, but with, with no lead. Like, they had shot these, like, side parts. It's like, oh, we have the movie. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's how it used to work. Yeah, because they didn't have a lead Just, yet, like, so cut away to somebody else random to... yes. It's kind of like in, in on the town, you know, they've got those all those pieces that are like in the part of the show. Uh, so Kelly, so Kelly had seen the musical numbers that Ari shot and they were terrible. He thought he asked Don if he would come over and help him with the picture. So so Donnan was put on loan to Columbia as well. Uh, so Kelly and Donnan tried to save the picture. The huge number that opened the film was supposed to be this big, huge, spectacular number on the dance stage. But the duo were so appalled when they saw it. Uh, Kelly and Donnan actually added three reaction shots in the final film of Kelly shaking his head at the performance on stage. Like to kind of be like, this is terrible. Like the character knows it's terrible. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which the choreographer of the film at the time, uh, Val Rassett, saw it as a personal slap in the face yeah. that, they, that they would do that. These two young upstarts. Um, when Kelly came on, uh, Kelly and Donnan came on, they, they took over designing the numbers for the film and Donnan came up with this idea to have Gene Kelly do a dance number with himself using kind of double exposure in the camera. Uh, Donnan, Donnan pitched to Kelly and he loved it. They went to the director of cover girl, Charles Vador, and he said it was impossible. And Stanley's like this, like young Stanley, he's like 18 at this time. And he's like, I think I know what to do. I think I know how to do it. I know how to do it. Uh, the number would eventually become known as the alter ego dance. And it was seen as kind of the foreshadowing of what the foreshadowing of what the duo would later do together. Donnan designed the visual sequence, shot it and edited it while Kelly choreographed it, choreographed the dance and stars in the sequence. Donnan 
also served as Kelly's double for the sequence to have someone that he would be dancing with on set when they were recording it. So he was actually the Kelly double for this sequence. Uh, famed musical director Busby Berkeley would later say it was his favorite musical number of any film. Yeah, no, it's very cool. It's it's yeah, it feels like a a a perfect example of their collaboration in that it's pushing both the choreography of the time and the technical yeah aspects of the time. And it's it's 1944 is when it came out, and it's just yeah, it's a to think that like they were able to. Do, I mean, yeah, it's a little rough around the edges, but like to think 1944 they were able to do something of this nature is kind of crazy. Mm. Um, so Donna's contract would expire and began working at Columbia uh, for a brief time. When Kelly was doing another film, Anchors Away, co-starring Frank Sinatra, Kelly told MGM Brass that he wanted Donna back at the studio. Uh, the previous chore- choreographer, uh, Rasset, who was insulted by Donna on Cover Girl, uh, had told the head of Columbia, Harry Cohen, uh, Cone that Don was Don was untalented that he should be let go. So that's why he was let go of his Columbia contract because he like signed a contract where he would re up it every year for seven straight years. And this choreographer was just like, he's terrible. Don't hire him back. So <laughs> Cohen fired him. I said or didn't re up him, and that allowed Don to go over to MGM and go back to working with Kelly for Anchors Away. So this one guy being very upset with him because of the three reaction shots they put in that movie essentially set up their, their working relationship. Hey man, the modern movie musical <laughs> wouldn't be what it is today. If not for that guy, not that guy taking and, that. I mean, honestly though, you know, there's a lot of petty, petty stuff going around <laughs> in Hollywood, but that that's pretty rough. If you, chore- <laughs> if you like s- sincerely choreograph this whole sequence and then these two new guys came in and they were just like, yeah, we're going to leave it in. But, but yeah, we're going to change the story to be that it sucks. Like, <laughs> come on. That, that guy kind of had a point on that. So during filming of Anchors Away, Donnan called up Gene Kelly at 3 a.m. asking him, would he like to do a dance number with Mickey Mouse? Uh, Kelly asked Donnan if he could actually mix a real-life figure with an animated character for a dance, and Donnan said he could. MGM didn't think he could, but they let Donnan and Kelly try it. The duo went to see Walt Disney himself to pitch him the idea of having Gene Kelly dance with Mickey Mouse. They eventually wanted to do it Donald Duck because it was the sailor outfit that mm-hmm. that, uh, that Kelly wears in the musical. Uh, Disney said he was working on something similar, and he showed them a scene from Three Caballeros where there's like dancing in it with Donald Duck. It's like kind of put o- like overlaid on real life stuff. And Don apparently mm-hmm. was not impressed by it. He was, <laughs> they got done. He was like, "This kind of sucks." Uh Disney declined to allow his characters to be shown in the MGM picture, so instead they ended up using Jerry Mouse from Tom and Jerry. Mm-hmm. And the sequence they did in this movie blew audiences the way at the time and would receive massive praise for pushing the technical side of filmmaking. Kelly would later say, I get all the credit for this, but it would have been impossible for me to do it without Stanley. He worked the cameraman and called the shots and all these intricate timings and movements. So after the success of Anchors Away, Stanley Don moved up the moved up to the A group of the Freed Unit, a production team ran by Arthur Freed, a musical producer that had produced such films as The Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, and the majority of the prime musicals of the 1950s later on, several of which were directed by Don and, and Kelly. Starting in 1946, Don soon became known as the musical doctor at MGM. He apparently worked on so many of these 
that he didn't remember all of them or hadn't seen them all since he created them in the 40s. And so after serving time in the U.S. Naval Air Service during World War II, Kelly, Kelly went off there and then returned to Hollywood. He contacted Donnan about helping him come up with the idea that would star Kelly and Frank Sinatra in hopes of repeating the success of Anchors Away. And they wrote their own story that was a premise for this new MGM musical. And that idea would be Take Me Out to the Ball Game, a baseball musical, uh, which we watched. Remember on the baseball one that you were so kind of confused by what was happening in it. Mm-hmm. So Don and Kelly really wanted to direct the movie, but Arthur Freed didn't think they were ready. And he brought in Busby Berkeley to direct the film, which highly upset Donnan. Uh, Cause Donnan was actually not impressed by Berkeley's directing style and thought <laughs> his, all of those musicals were not as great as everyone thought they were. Um, he also didn't love the way he acted on set. Cause apparently Berkeley was dealing with alcoholism at the time and it was seeming to, sh- it was starting to show on set. So midway through filming, uh, Berkeley was let go and Kelly and Donnan took over the picture, but received zero directing credit for the film. Brief aside, uh, outside of work, Don soon married his first wife, Jean Coyne, a former dancer and pupil of Gene Kelly. Uh, they would later separate two years later and divorce a year later after that. Coyne would later marry Gene Kelly in 1960, and they would stay okay. married until her, her her death in 1973. Okay. Um, MGM soon bought the rights to a hit Brian musical that was directed by George Abbott with a score by Leonard Bernstein and choreography by Jerome Robbins. Mm-hmm. And Abbott wanted to direct the picture, but MGM declined and instead took the advice of Arthur Freed to hire the young duo and former protégés of George Abbott, Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly, to direct On the Town. Stanley was 25 years old. Wow. So, so Thomas, what was On the Town about? Uh, on the Town is about three sailors who get uh, uh, 24 hours of, of shore leave in New York, the greatest city in the world. And uh, they all three kind of have different plans. Uh, the one played by Chip, played by Frank Sinatra, is he's kind of a nerd. I know you're not thinking yep. like, oh, Frank Sinatra, uh, nerd, maybe not, maybe <laughs> not the most typical uh, casting for him. But yeah, he's got this list of like museums that he wants to hit and wants to see all the sites. Uh, whereas Gene Kelly and the the third guy, Jules Munchen is. Yeah, Jules Munchen is the guy, is the actor name. Yeah, his uh, his motivations aren't super clear. He just wants to have a good time. And Gene Kelly, meanwhile, sees like immediately sees this poster for a woman who's been selected as Miss Turnstiles, the, <laughs> the mascot of the subway for a month, and and immediately thinks that like she's this glamorous celebrity, even though it's actually just this kind of thing where they pick somebody out of the the crowd and they're like, hey, do you want to be Miss Turnstiles? Uh, but like falls in love with her at first sight and is like, I have to find Miss Turnstiles. Uh, so it's about the three of them kind of making their way through New York for the day, yeah. and, and ultimately all three of them finding finding love, of course, because what else do Navy sailors do with a day <laughs> on shore leave? But I mean, the big thing on the town, um, that it, it's the opening. Yeah, like the the opening is just when watching it this time, I was somewhat reminded. <laughs> of in the heights i keep i keep bringing up in the heights of late um because it's just it's just out but like the opening of like waking up in new york city because like the opening of kind of like the morning of like the, the the dock worker coming into work and then all of a sudden it's like boom 
everyone's awake. They're running to see see New York, and that's the kind of like huge tra- uh, tourist montage of mm. all of them going around New York, and it's just it's insane because again, as I was saying, it wasn't the first film to shoot on location, but it was the first film in a while. Um, because Don and said apparently like they pre uh, uh, uh sound they would shoot anywhere. They would shoot anywhere. Don said. But after sound came in, no one ever shot on location. So, like, mm-hmm. I think since 29, only, like, two other movies that were a little bit big at the time had actually shot in New York City. And they were the first ones to really go in and be like, we're going to shoot in New York City. Yeah, and, like, you have really to. really showcase it. I think that opening is just, I still still think, in, like, cinema history, probably one of the more famous, like, musical sequences. It's a lot of fun watching frank sinatra trying to keep up with gene kelly from yeah. the choreography <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the thing so like that's the thing about the the day in, a day in new york which is this is kind of my my one beef with gene kelly uh, one of my beefs with gene kelly is these dream ballets that he does and like this one here they're like yeah no one else can dance like gene kelly so we just have to hire like professional dancers mm-hmm. to portray the other characters in the movie because yeah. Sinatra and them can't dance. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing about Kelly. No matter how I, f- I think, because I think sometimes his dream ballets like slow down the movies they did together. But Kelly is just such an athlete, weirdly, mm-hmm. when talking about dance. Like the stuff he can do athletically is kind of insane. Um, and this might tip your hand a little bit to the to the Astaire Kelly debate later, but he he really can just like jump three stories from a building if he wanted to. <laughs> okay. And like, right. turn right. you know what? We'll go into it. We'll go into it. <laughs> the reason that it took Gene, and this is partially me. This is partially also, there are some, this, this is, I'm, I didn't invent this theory, but the reason that we needed Gene Kelly to bring about this idea of like, okay, people, people can sing and dance their feelings out is because Fred Astaire was ballroom. The, the appeal of Fred Astaire was to be like, look at this guy. He knows all the right moves and he can, he can make all the right moves and he knows, you know, what you're supposed to do here, how you're supposed to move your feet here. And Kelly is the exact opposite. Kelly. I mean, it's still choreography. I don't want to say like Kelly's making everything up on the spot, but Kelly's style is to make you think he's making it up on the spot. Yeah. And um, th- that's why one of the, one of the sequences I brought up to you is, is um, it's not a, a Stanley Donnan movie, but uh, in uh, summer stock, right? Summer stock. He has mm-hmm. this sequence where he's alone on a stage with a piece of newspaper and a squeaky floorboard. And, and he's, he, he choreographs it like his character is just like discovering this for the first time and is making yeah. up this dance to go with it but with with that style that is what i think really crossed us over the threshold of being like okay this guy this song is coming to this guy right now this dance is coming to him right now and i think singing in the rain there's some great examples of it in this movie um but I, i think singing in the rain is is the best example of that like with the moses supposes yeah you know ultimately that is staged as like these guys are so bored out of their minds this is so ridiculous this like voice lesson they're in they're gonna like tear the room apart yeah from their boredom and that's where that 
that choreography comes from it it was it was always story informed his court and, and singing in the rain is is you know you watch the sequence of singing in the rain and he's he you know he comes across this puddle and decides to start pl- splashing and yeah. you see within his choreography he was always putting in like why why am i doing this why am i making yeah. why am i making this move which a stare was more like this is how it's done this is how you dance this is what choreography is and so i think it really took kelly and that style of choreography to bring us into an era where something like west side story could exist and where we could go like these guys are dancing but they're fighting (laughs) um and i mean obviously yes people did that on the stage previously but film wise took him bringing that in front of a camera to really get us to that point as far as a movie musical went yeah, and we'll we'll hop around here because I think I mean a little bit with these three movies they did, which which is on the town singing the rain and uh, it's always fair weather. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that that Kelly has a more everyman quality to his style of dance. Mm-hmm. It's not Fosse because Fosse's going to get a little bit more different in his choreography, but it definitely feels like the next step towards Fosse in yeah. terms of like movie musicals mm-hmm. um, with like kind of the the almost angular the way the angles of their body and choreography i think like bossy goes this more crooked style later but like kelly kind of has this hunched over style when mm-hmm. the stairs like always standing straight up like back straight um very professional um which i like a stare so i'm not i'm not saying it's, it's the thing is they're both i think they're both very different yeah but i but but when you're when you're looking at these eras of the performance musical versus this kind of emotional musical fred astaire is the peak he is the pinnacle of the performance musical he is the guy that knows all the words he knows all the steps and he's going to present them and then kelly is in the exact opposite school of thought he is um you know i need to put in a ton of work and a ton of planning to make it look like this character is making this dance up right now yeah, and I think my, my my issue a little bit with Kelly sometimes is like when he tries to do these dream ballets that feel a little bit outside of that, and mm. it's more like I want to show off, I want to show you I can yeah. dance. That's well, my I, thing. I, I, yeah, I think that's kind of got to be a part of it. You know, if you put all this effort in to making something look effortless, you do kind of have to be like, okay, well now I need to, you know, now I need to to wow them. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's kind of like Kelly's. A little bit of his downfall in terms of like direct, because that's the thing is that why why I think Don's more interesting as a director is that Kelly really didn't do as much directing wise after their three films, but Don continued to direct mm-hmm. post their trio of films, and I feel like it's because like Kelly was always almost too focused on the dance part of it, mm-hmm. um, and. I, I do think it was a perfect marriage of the two of the I want to do dance, but Don's like, okay, I know how to shoot it. And it's the mm-hmm. perfect blend of visuals with the dance. Cause Don kind of says like, I never really gave like Kelly notes on his dances. Like I worked on the camera of it all. I worked on how to show it for, for film. Yeah. And I mean, is it, is, is, the, is his dream ballet necessary and on the town? No, no, um, I do kind of love it in American in Paris and it kind of works just because Leslie Caron's character is a ballerina in the, mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. And, um, 
and I think it, I think it works in Singing in the Rain just because it is presented as like a performance. It needs to be but, it needs um, to be a little shorter. I think it needs to be a little shorter. That's my <laughs> only thing. It's like an 11, 12 minute sequence, and I'm like, we just stop the movie. But so you're cool if Damien Chazelle does it. I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. I never said okay. that. <laughs> okay. No, no, I kind of I kind of like those, but I get it. I, they're, I, they're not oh, for everyone. Here's the thing: I like it, but like it's it's when you stop for 11 minutes of the movie to do it and the thing mm. about on the town and a little bit like seeing the rain it's like it feels like you're telling a portion of the story we've already seen before yeah throughout the film it's like mm-hmm. do we need to spend 10 more minutes on something we've seen seeing yeah. the rain yeah seeing the rain's the example where like i think it really works and needs to like i think even don said he's like it's still too long he's like i've he's like, the only time i ever uh seen it cut he goes i always i thought it was long when we made it I, th- I still think it's long now. Uh, <laughs> he's like, I cut down like five minutes of it when I was showing it to someone. And that was the only time I've ever seen it with the shorter version. And I think it's better. Um, so, but yeah, so, but it does feel like Kelly just like, I'm going to show you guys I can dance. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the town, but again, but dream ballets too, you got to put in perspective. Dream ballets were all the rage, rage at this point because of Oklahoma on the stage mm-hmm. um, with Agnes DeMille doing these dream ballets with that. And that kind of prompted Kelly to be like, I want to, and, and, and Fosse chased this too, by the way, later on, because we talked about Bob Fosse in the show many times or before. And Fosse always like, it was the idea of like that every man character who was trying to be seen as the Fred Astaire, as the professional, as the, the, the ballet dancer, like as the, that type person, and they always were fighting the 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 criticism or kind of the persona they get they got they got they gained as like the everyman kind of dancer. But you 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 are on board with the twenty minute uh, death sequence at the end of all that jazz, are you not? Well, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> that but but other thing too, that feels story motivated. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. Well, to Kelly- I, that might be why I think I like the American in Paris one as well, is that it does give you new information. It is a literally a dream That's sequence and that it's it's more like what Chazelle would would later do. It's like, yeah. what what if we were to get together? This is what, you know, it would be like. And I think Don and, and Kelly to an extent, but I think Don specifically really pushed to like if we're doing a sequence and needs the matter for the story. And we've d- discussed this of like, what is a movie musical? And how, like, if you pluck that song out of the movie, does the movie still work? And I do think with a lot of the Kelly Donnan stuff, if you take any of their songs, that doesn't fully work. New York, New York, New York, New York, it's a wonderful time. <laughs> hey, fellas, what's the big rush? We only got 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, we never been here before. Ah, uh, what can happen to you in one day? What do you think you're going to do? <laughs> New York, New York, a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. Briefly on the town, when it came out, uh, it was, people loved it. Uh, there was criticism, however, for the Dream Ballet a Day in New York uh, by initial critics. But uh, a lot of critics said it was the best musical since 42nd Street, as one London critic said. And someone said it would trigger a new era of musicals. Um, he does Royal Wedding afterwards, and that's him working with Fred Astaire. Uh, and I, the big famous, and talk about that 
not really just just to mention it is the big dancing on the ceiling sequence of Fred Astaire circling and it's still astonishing looking at today and you're thinking yeah we went from that to inception there we go that's the (laughs) one-to-one uh but then it's like even in the heights rips takes a little bit from it uh uh recently as i keep mentioning that but yeah so that happens and we'll move on to singing in the rain um so singing in the rain is a musical essentially about the changing from sound or from silent pictures to sound pictures it's about don lockwood a famous uh, silent film star who is caught up in the middle of this transition and realizes that he needs to make a change. Uh, his his co-star... Uh, Lena Lamont. Lena Lamont, thank you. Lena Lamont, who's this kind of high-pitched uh, <laughs> uh, 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 actress that he works with. Uh, and, how, and it really does capture what it was like transitioning from, uh, from sound to silence that the artist would later, uh, the artist from 2011 would later kind of like take as well and, and would be inspired by this movie. Um, but it really becomes the biggest, the best Hollywood musical of all time, probably. It stars Gene Kelly, stars Debbie, Debbie Reynolds, and stars uh, Donald O'Connor uh, and Gene Hagen, and also Sid Charisse briefly in the Dream Ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's not much i mean it's an astonishing film so let's let's what do you want to say about singing in the rain thomas because it's <laughs> uh, so like when we were talking about the the dream ballet sequences like this movie is kind of wildly meta for for the period oh it is and, and, and you know and being a movie about movies but it's 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 a little bit more than that it's very biting and it's the 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 humor in it is 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 really sharp and and one thing it made me think about when we were talking about the dream ballet sequences i, I do kind of love the way that the dream ballet sequence is kind of presented to us is they're like, you know, we got to find a way to turn this movie into a musical. And he's like, well, what if we just tack on this musical sequence at the beginning <laughs> and, and the audience will love it. They'll never realize what a cheap trick it is. And then it's just like, and then they show you the entire thing. <laughs> and, but my, the, the very part is that the, 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 uh, the head of the studio goes, I can't really picture it, but I know it's going to be great. It's like, what he said. <laughs> It's like, yeah, big trip. It's going to be great. They're basically like, here's a trick. Here's a trick that studios do to make you think that movies are better than they are. And then they yeah. proceed to do it. <laughs> but no, there's a lot. I mean, I loved Donald Connor, uh, his 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 line of just like, it's a Hollywood part. They always have to show a movie. Like when they're, mm-hmm. when they're bringing the projector down. I mean, this is a weird part. This is a weird thing in Hollywood at this point. Because you got to think, this is 1952. By the way, Donnan, 28 years old. Insane. Um, when they're making this. Hollywood's becoming the creators are becoming more cynical about their industry. I mm. mean, you have Sunset Boulevard in 1950, you have In Lonely Place 1950. I think you you have Bad and the Beautiful uh 19 like it's very much they're becoming like almost a satire of the industry they work in. Some would say they're buying the hand that fed them or Bad and the Beautiful 52, so it's the same year as as this movie. So they're very much like cr- like making fun of the Hollywood the Hollywoodness of it all and this, and the kind of the, the business like mentality it can have. Um, Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about this movie to think about is that this is a jukebox musical Mm -hmm. because it's, it's based on Arthur Freed's musical catalog because Freed had been working with MGM since 1929 when talkies became a thing. And he saw what the, what an American in Paris did for the Gershwins 
And he saw what Irving Berlin had done with Easter Parade, where it was like these two movies that showcase their their entire like the entirety of their work. And Freed's like, I'm gonna do that same thing, but we're gonna we're gonna do it with like all my like movie musical songs. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the idea came about to pluck from the musical catalog of Arthur Freed and put it into the movie. The only song that's not an original, I believe, or that's not an older song, is the make him laugh song which they kind of stole from cole porter called be a clown it's the same exact like it's like the lyrics are a little changed but the melody's still the same (laughs) and because because kelly and donna went to him like hey can you give us something like be a clown for this sequence and they're yeah sure and they come back he goes we didn't say give us be a clown we said give us something like it but no sing in the rain i i think to show you again the perfect blend of the two uh is the singing in the rain sequence of of it's it's a very simple sequence he's mm. singing singing in the rain while he is singing and dancing in the rain kelly i think is an is a as you've kind of said too a little bit kelly is a, an actor or a dancer who could really do well just by himself mm-hmm. it's the making it up on the spot is what it feels like the perfect blend with donnan is how he tells the story visually like it's like you can't fully say it's all Kelly because the big the big climactic moment of the moment of the sequence and the emotional the emotional moment of the sequence of the way it's the huge as I said before it's the huge uh, crane shot of when Kelly is spinning and that's a mm-hmm. Donnan thing that's not a Kelly thing because it's very much just like here's my dance and Don's like cool I know how to shoot this. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart, and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain. Just singing, singing in the rain. Uh, briefly, the, the big kind of thing apparently is like, it, it was apparently just like hellacious to shoot this, it sounds like. Because it seems like... The, the all the stories that Kelly was difficult with Debbie Reynolds about how like he he was grueling with the with choreography and all that and the big story was like uh uh Kelly yelled at her one day so she like hid and was crying under a piano and Fred Astaire found her and taught her the steps <laughs> that's what she said in one book and then a later book she's like oh Kelly was a doll so it's like it's very like Debbie Reynolds had some very conflicting reviews of Kelly <laughs> on the movie uh and then Donnan is kind of like yeah she was really difficult to work with like and and kelly kind of says this it's like interesting to say how like it seems like they all found each other very difficult to work with on this movie but it doesn't show i mean <laughs> but what's some of your favorite sequences in singing in the rain yeah obviously singing in the rain but i love um the moses supposes sequence and the good morning sequence is a ton of fun as well and then and then the, you know this is one of those it's rare to have a movie musical where you're like, yeah, a non-musical scene is is really sticking out to me. But the 
the intro of Don That's Lockwood. Right. The opening um, is amazing. The, the way he, is he's kind of it's it's him doing an, an, a red carpet interview about how you know what a charmed life he's led when what we're actually seeing visually is you know how he, he's a scrappy dude that had to yeah. like fight his way to to where he's at um and also uh, uh, just a fantastic scene and it's one that gets shown a lot is when they're trying to teach lena about the microphone and just <laughs> what a, a pain from a technical standpoint bringing sound in was and that's and that's like how it was so i really like that. that was like you would have like the sound record it's like in like a hot box basically just recording it where there's like no air coming in <laughs> And no one knew how to where to put the microphone, but yeah, opening the op- that opening scene is great. I think Donnan said he thought he saw it interesting because like we're starting off the movie with a lie, is what it is. Like we're seeing him like we we now understand that Don Lockwood is like he has a narrative and he's gonna stick to it, but he's really just like he's like every other American is kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. But no, it's it's an amazing film. If you haven't seen Singing in the Rain, go check it out. I think it's streaming on HBO Max right now. Um, it really is their their masterpiece. What's the matter, Dexter? Lena, look, Lena, don't you remember I told you there's a microphone right there in the bush? Yeah. You have to talk into it. Well, I was talking, wasn't I, Miss Dinsmore? Yes, my dear, but please remember round tones. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Yes, yes, my dear, that's much better now. Hold it a second. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. Now try it again. She is dumb. Oh, she'll get it, Dexter. Look, Lena, don't worry. We're all a little nervous the first day. Everything's going to be okay. Oh, by the way, Roscoe, you know the scene coming up where I say, Imperious Princess of the Night? I don't like those lines there. Is it all right if I just say what I always do? I, I love you, I love you, I love you. Sure, any way it's comfortable. But into the bush! Okay, again. Quiet! Roll em. So next he makes... He goes out on his own to do other films, and he ends up making Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, briefly, Thomas, what is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers about? <laughs> Oof, okay. Uh, <laughs> Very problematic movie. Yeah, extremely problematic movie. It, Watched it last night for the first it's time. It's about seven kind of mountain men who decide that they need wives in their life to you know up in their very secluded mountain cabin so they go to the nearest town and kidnap seven women yep and bring them back to their mountain cabin and like the the town puts together this posse to go rescue them but because of the winter they aren't able to get through the mountain pass until like after the snow melts so then these like all seven of these women yeah of course fall in love with their kidnappers uh in the time that they're up there and and you know make make turn them into better men as well but <laughs> yeah it's pretty much the whole movie actually that's the whole act three in a way yeah it's very it starts off with like the um the main character who was played by uh howard keel goes to town is like i need a wife i need someone who can cook and clean and take care of the household with my seven brothers and doesn't tell her he has six other brothers 
but he's like, I want to marry you. And she's like, you know what? I'm an orphan. I live alone in this town. I'll marry you too. Um, and then it's like her, apparently that the original, like, I don't know if it's product, the original story it's based on, uh, based off of is that in that one, it's the, the, so he ends up marrying her. She finds out, Oh God, I'm living with like six, six other dudes here. And she's like, Oh, why don't you guys have girlfriends or have, have wives? And the original story she was the one that convinced him to go and get the women hmm. because she doesn't want to be the only one cooking and cleaning around the house. And that's why she gets him to go do that. They don't go that way in this movie. She's very much like, why are you kidnapping these women? You heathens. Hmm. Um, but the big sequence, I mean, like I said, I, I, I think the movie is very problematic, but the sequence at like kind of the, the town like dance essentially, or the town like event. Mm, barn they have. raising. Barn raising is amazing. Yeah. Like it's still very, it's still amazing. To see, it's an amazing sequence to see. I was like, Oh, this is why this movie has a good follow. Big follow. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because they, they had such a large cast that like they were able to cast, you know, there's seven brothers, but not all the brothers really had to be actors. So they got some, like they got some like real yeah, dancers. Like ballet in there. They dancers had some, yeah. They had some, ac- some acrobats in there. And so you get some really, really incredible physical sequences in the movie. And so it, it is a film. Anytime you talk to somebody who is a fan of movie musicals, you bring that movie up. They're like, wow, really rough story, but fun movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, TCM did it on their like uh, kind of revisiting, like when they're like prop- revisiting problematic movies and talking about like why we should still talk about them. Mm-hmm. And this was one that was like one they were like, spending a lot of time on um yeah it's so the big thing i want to bring in here is uh is michael kidd and michael kidd's the choreographer for the for the film and he had gained fame because he choreographed guys and dolls on broadway and uh, did that show and so he was brought in for this and i think he had recently worked with vincent minnelli but he he him and him and don kind of talked about he's like he goes yeah the songs are great but there's no dancing in this movie and Donna's like, no, there's lots of dancing. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, it doesn't make sense for these mountain men to just be like dancers, mm-hmm. like go out and dance all of a sudden. Like, and let, if you want dancing, you have to like create a section. You have to create moments where like it would make sense for them to dance. And so that's why the barn raising sequence was put in place because kids like, oh, what if they're like competing with the other men to win the women they're trying to get? Um but Michael Kidd on Don, he goes, from my point of view, I'd rather work with I'd rather work with Stanley than Vincent Minnelli. Vincent was a difficult person to communicate with. He was not very articulate, whereas Stanley could, would always say what he was thinking. And he was very clear and methodical. So it sounds like and it'll, it'll pop a little few more movies, too, that Don had a very clear view of what he wanted, at least visually in a movie. Um, and when they were making this film, they used CinemaScope. And apparently, it's funny hearing people talk about widescreen at this point in time, because all the filmmakers like hate it. Because they're just like, why am I using so much space on a movie screen? Just give me the four by three, mm-hmm. four, four by three thing. Um, and apparently, Kid and so what they had to do, because screens were not, CinemaScope was invented to get people back in the theaters that were going, instead, instead of watching TV. TV was becoming huge and they wanted to show like movies are better, better. Let's make the screens bigger. Basically we're doing this now with IMAX and whatever and all that stuff. Um, so what they had to do, because it was a time when CinemaScope was very brand new, 
Not all theaters had widescreen projectors. So Donnan had to shoot this film twice. So it would fit the Academy ratio of four by three. They had to shoot and edit two movies. One for four by three, one for CinemaScope. So they had two separate editing rooms for it all. They, they, They had to restructure every scene they did so it would fit visually for both four by three, the Academy ratio at that time and CinemaScope. Wow. Which is insane. Uh, also, too, to kind of lead you into uh, the next or one of the next films is that this was seen as like the B movie for MGM. And their A picture was Brigadoon starring Gene Kelly and directed by Vincent Minnelli. Well, apparently no one liked Brigadoon when it came out, but everyone loves Seven Brides and Seven Brothers. And like hmm. MGM's like, oh, we got to switch this because they're, they're pushing Brigadoon the entire time. And they switched it to promote this movie and ended up being like number four, the fourth highest grossing film of the year when it was released in uh, 1954. Um, so, yeah, he does that in 1954. Brief mention of this. I just want to say this here. He has another movie called Deep in My Heart and why it's kind of important. It stars Bob Fosse in one of his rare roles during his MGM days. Apparently, Don and Fosse were really good friends. And Don and Fosse would actually work together a total of four times during their career hmm. in films. Fosse and Donnan, he stars in this for, for Donnan. He does the choreography for the Pajama Game and Damn Yankees, which he also has an appearance in. Mm. And then he also appears in The Little Prince in 1974 of his, like, that that black kind of outfit that he wears, whatever that's, that inspires, like, Michael Jackson stuff or Billie Jean. Like, mm. that was a Donnan movie. So they worked together a while. Apparently... Fosse had his heart attack in the hospital when they were watching a review of The Little Prince is what it was. When they said how terrible it was, and that's when he had his heart attack. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so it moves on. Seven Brides, Seven Brothers, big hit. Don's this huge kind of guy now, MGM. Kelly, on a downward swing, MGM. Musicals are slowly dying off. He hasn't had a lot of movies uh, that have really hit uh, uh, post-American in Paris um, and Singing in the Rain. So they decided to do a movie together. And it's always fair weather. So it's always fair weather is essentially about three sailors from World War II who are best friends during the war. They come back to America and they're like, we're going to be best friends for life. And the bartender at the bar they're at is just like, you're not going to talk to again after this meeting. Like, no, no, no. Ten years time. We'll come back here to this bar and prove to you that we're still great friends. Uh, all three of them have these like high ideals of what they're going to do with their lives. One's going to be a famous chef. One's going to be a famous painter. One's going to be a politician. And none of that happens for them. The chef becomes, owns a, a, a burger, a burger hut basically called the Cordon mm-hmm. Bleu. Kelly, who is the politician ends up being kind of a hustler and helps fix boxing matches. And the artist ends up working for a marketing firm and like, is just depressed with his job. Um, they reunite 10 years later by happenstance in a way. And they soon realize they all hate each other in the 10 years that passed. It's known. It came out in 1955, kind of at the tail end of the MGM musicals. Some see it as the last, like like last movie of that Hollywood era of musicals for the fifties. And it's kind of known for being a downbeat of a musical, a satire of musicals in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So you had never seen this before, correct? No. Yeah, I had not. What did you think of it? when watching it yeah it was fun it was it's pretty sharp um yeah it's definitely kind of weird for a, a hollywood musical like there's a 
a sequence uh, one of the songs is all their internal monologues yeah. about how I much they hate the other ones <laughs> but they're all like harmonizing with yeah. each other about how much they hate each other and it's and it's telling a pretty yeah it's telling a pretty glum story because it kind of turns into for at least two of the characters throughout the the day throughout kind of their experience what they ultimately realize is it's not that they hate these other people it's that seeing these these men after 10 years has made them reflect on on who they've become and they kind of hate who they've become as opposed to the last guy who's perfectly happy with himself yeah <laughs> but yeah it's, it's 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 pretty dark material for for a comedy of this type yeah uh it kind of it, uh, not to say that it is entirely introspective it it kind of ends with a the big fight dance sequence and a and a and a mafia subplot that gets wrapped up very very nicely. Yeah. Um. And then there's some there's some little performance numbers peppered in that that don't feel entirely necessary. But um. But yeah, it's 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 fun. It's a good time, and it and it feels like a good. Kelly Kelly has that kind of of bite to him that that makes uh that makes singing in the rain work so well. Yeah. And, and I think that's another reason that I know this is not one of Donnan's films, but that's another reason why I do love American in Paris is so much is that it does have some of that kind of, of sharper humor to it that you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. out of a, a Hollywood musical at the time. And I think, I think Kelly embodies that well. And so I think this is a, this is a really fitting one for him and, and Donnan to kind of end this era on, um it's it's not not the best of the air in any way but it does feel like they're embracing where hollywood is going at the time especially when paired with on the town which is like we're in the military and everything's great and new york (laughs) is wonderful and and, uh, everyone will fall in love with you um whereas this one's like talking about divorce and talking about (laughs) the criminal underworld of new york and and feeling disappointed in yourself yeah (laughs) And realizing you didn't, you, you, yeah, you didn't find, you didn't end up where you thought you were going to be uh, yeah, yeah. afterwards. Um, you settled or something. It's very much about that. Um, I mean, there's great sequences in the sequences in the film. I mean, I love Kelly's roller skating sequence. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of his like most underrated sequences. And we haven't talked about this, but to go with the everyman quality of Kelly, and you kind of mentioned with the Summerstock uh, scene, um, is that he loves using props. Yeah. Like it's the tra- it's it's the it's the roller skates in this movie, or it's also the uh, the trash can, the trash pail, or whatever that he uses at the the, the tap dancing sequence with the trash pail uh, at the beginning with uh, Michael Kidd, by the way, stars in it as well, the choreographer for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, yeah, I think I think Sid Charisse's sequence is great, where she's dancing with the boxers essentially, mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah, I like that it's kind of a depressing. Not depressing, but it's kind of, it's funny. Like they, they they commented on how like it was a satire, which means it doesn't make money because satires don't right. make money. It's what what like MGM was saying at the time. It's not a, a sad ending, but it is a it is somewhat of a downbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and why it kind of really reflects the Kelly Donner relationship. It is it is their last film uh, together. Also, it kind of be the last time they talked for forty five years because apparently this movie they hated working on it. Was what oh, it was. No. So it was meant to be a sequel for On the Town. That was the plan from the beginning. Hmm, okay. Sinatra was too big, is what it was. Mm-hmm. And the other actor, Jules Munchen, had only done like a few roles since On the Town. So he, he they, it wouldn't make sense for him to do it. 
Um, so Don's career, I said, was on the upswing. Kelly was on the downswing. The big thing that was happening of why he kind of did this, Kelly had directed his first solo effort called Invitation to Dance. Kelly started filming in 1952, post-Sing in the Rain. It would not be completed until 1954, two years later. Hmm. Uh, it was apparently like one of the longest shoots MGM had had at the time. <laughs> MGM had no clue yeah. what to do with it, and they put it on the shelf for two years. It was not released until 1956. Because it was a dance movie with zero plot. Don says about Gene, I didn't want to do the picture, but I said I'd do it, and I did it. I didn't want to co-direct another picture with Kelly at that point. We didn't get on very well. And for that matter, Gene didn't get on very well with anybody at that time. And all of them were like, the writers of the film, Adolf Green and Betty Comden, were like, it was the last. It was made when the era of musicals was over, at least for MGM. And there was so much conflict between Don and, and, and uh, Kelly and Kelly was kind of doing some stuff in there, like for Michael Kidd, for example, because Michael Kidd's the big new upstart with Guys and Dolls and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And he had this big solo in the movie and Gene cut it. He was like, oh, it's not working for the movie. And both Donnan and Andrew Previn, the composer, were like, no, it was working fine. Gene was just jealous because he didn't want to have a bigger moment than him in the movie. So there's like there's like a lot of inner conflict here with all these people. When speaking on Kelly at the uh, later on, years later, uh, Don said, I'm grateful to him, but I paid back the debt 10 times over and he got his money's worth out of me. <laughs> so they were like, it, it's weird. Kelly's always, when, when, when reading about him, talking about Don, it's very like, oh, he was great. He did this. Oh, yeah, he was lovely. And I helped start his career. Like, I think at one point Kelly says like, oh, yeah, Don Stanley came to me when he was 12 years old and we just hit it off. And I'm like, that didn't make that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> and and Stanley's just like, because they said he's very Southern. He's like, yeah, I won't say much. I'll just say we did our thing and I moved on. It's like, it's very much like there's there was animosity there. For a while, because they said in 1991, they uh, they went to dinner after this, after honoring the writers of the film, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who wrote all three of their pictures. And and Don's like, yeah, that was my first time, like, sitting down with Gene in 45 years. Like, it was just like they something. I don't know what fully happened, but something happened that really just like broke them apart, like a massive break. This thing's a bad dream. Why can't I just scream? Ah! Oh, why did I fly to New York from Shy to drink scotch at noon with a hick and a goon? Can these be the guys I once thought I could never live without? This guy is a punk, a punk, a punk. This guy is a snob, a snob, a snob. This guy is a dope, a hick, a square. I shouldn't have come, I'm in despair. Our dreams are dusting down the drain. So after that, he breaks out from MGM, kind of. We're going to spend a lot of time on all of his movies, but the three films I want to talk about is kind of the Hepburn trilogy. So the first one he does is Funny Face. And Thomas, what is what is Funny Face about? It's about Audrey Hepburn. Picture her. Who is a is a is they keep telling us is a dowdy looking bookshop worker, even though they do nothing to make her not look like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> 
and Fred Astaire is this is this photographer who manages to look deep down inside and see the potential somewhere deep in her to be a model and everyone's like a model her no this bookish this bookish woman no yeah yeah and then she agrees to model for Fred Astaire in this magazine in exchange for a trip to Paris where she can study philosophy which is what she is truly interested in yeah this film again when watching it uh, you brought damien chazelle uh with la la land when i see funny face i'm like oh this because hey so umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is a french musical comes out a few years later also mm. very european also very colorful it feels like they probably saw this movie and when i watch funny face like oh, this feels like damien chazelle loves this movie because <laughs> visually the movie's so colorful I mean, the big sequence that I love is the is like the Audrey Hep- the taking the photos of Audrey Hepburn like throughout Paris, mm-hmm. and that's I think a beautifully shot sequence. Visually, I think it's stunning. I think it really captures Hepburn's persona at this point, like and uh, her kind of peak. The movie as a whole doesn't fully work. Like the songs are are not that memorable. Uh, the Astaire Hepburn relationship is very odd. He's definitely too old. That's the big thing. Yeah. He's, he's too it's, old. It's the, it's the combination of the age and also him like constantly telling her how ugly she is. That just makes it feel like grooming to me. Yeah. it very Yeah. Well, it's like he kisses her at one point. Like, oh, I just feel like kissing you. And it's like, oh, OK. And then like she just fall, it's she, she falls in love with them, even they don't really have a, a lot of moments together for that to happen. Like in terms of a film, like mm-hmm. it's just because they're working together, she falls in love with them is basically what it is. Yeah. Um. But yeah, visually, I think it's great. It, it was a box office failure when it came out. It would become a hit because the studio that did it would re-release it when My Fair Lady came out, and that's what turned it into a profitable film. Um. Okay. It would. It was kind of the last movie of like Fred Astaire's big run at the time, or last run at the time, uh, because he was definitely he was aging out. Yeah, I think it's one that like a lot of people I've watched were like, oh yeah. I'm really loving the visuals have no clue what happens in the movie. Uh, and that's kind of what best describes this film. I think it's visually stunning, which I think, like I said, all of Don's films, I think are all visually stunning. Um, but the film is just like, doesn't have something that grabs you story wise, but yeah, beautiful sequences in Paris, like, the way it captures mm-hmm. the city, even though most of it was shot on a sound, like, on a studio lot in a, in, in a, a Hollywood um it does really capture the world don's really good i mean even even on the town in a way does a good job of capturing a sp- a space or a city but not mm-hmm. using it fully in the movie but yeah. you get a sense like the entire films take takes place there yeah he's a great he's a great atmosphere director very much so very much so You were you tired. Said that you were you tired. Said you were you tired. told me you were you tired. You said you were so exhausted. You said you needed sleep. You told me that you had to you rest. You said you ought to I rest. I thought you wanted is rest. Is this what you call I rest? haven't time to rest. This fussing and fretting is getting my goat. Let's all let our hair down. We're in the same boat. We're strictly tourists. You can tear and jeer. All we want to say is Lafayette. We are here on a spree. Bonjour, Paris. And then that leads us into charade. So I'm gonna let you take. Tell me what charade is again, because or about because we mentioned it earlier. It's a very Hitchcockian movie. 
Yeah, um, a lot of twists, a lot of turns. A lot of twists. Uh, Charade is about a woman played by Audrey Hepburn who uh, is away on vacation and meets a man played by Cary Grant. They're kind of flirty. They're both living in Paris. She tells him to like hit her up in Paris sometime. Yeah. She gets back to Paris to find out that her husband has been murdered and that there are these three men that her husband had a whole secret past. And there are these three men who are out to get this money that her husband had helped them steal and then stole from them. And Cary Grant comes into her life at first as kind of an innocent bystander who's like, I'll help you out as a friend. But as the film goes on, we come to realize that maybe he's tied up in all this and maybe he's lying to her. Maybe everyone's lying to her. She doesn't really know who to believe. Definitely feels like a Hitchcock film. It definitely feels like a early Bond film in in moments like it's mm. a movie that really in terms of just like it's carrie grant so like it has that north by northwest type qualities um but it's 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 an odd movie when like because when i every time i rewatch it i'm like i forget how like comedic this movie is mm-hmm. like yeah. it's very kind of like the the banter between grant and hepburn i think is fantastic yeah it 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 here's another one that's got like an age difference but the way that they handle it they they kind of lean right into it whereas it's kind of ignored in funny face they're like yeah. yeah no one's gonna bring up how old fred astaire is in this movie whereas it becomes like a running joke in this movie that audrey hepburn <laughs> has the hots for Cary grant and he's like i'm too old for you yeah and they play it really well to the point they where do. you're just like okay she's fully aware of it like <laughs> this is kind of fun yeah well, I love their opening scene when they meet at like the Alps or wherever, like, mm-hmm. and it's just like, uh, oh, I'm divorced. I hope it's not on account of me. Like, it's, like the, the, their banter, mm-hmm. their repartee is just amazing. Um, yeah. And I always, for, I, I kind of always forget of like how good they are together in this movie. You're blocking my view. Oh, uh, oh. which view would you prefer? The one you're blocking. Okay. It's my last chance. I'm flying back to Paris this afternoon. What's your name? Peter Joshua. Oh, mine's Regina Lampert. Is there a Mr. Lampert? Yes. Good for you. No, it isn't. I'm getting a divorce. Please, not on my account. Oh, no, I see. I don't really love him. Well, at least you're honest. Mm. Is there a Mrs. Joshua? Yes, but we're divorced. Oh, that wasn't a proposal. I'm just curious. <laughs> is your husband with you? Oh, no, Charles is never with me. What do people call you, Pete? Mr. Joshua. Oh. I've enjoyed talking with you. Now you're angry. No, no, I'm not angry. I just have a lot of packing to do. I'm going back to Paris, too. Well, wasn't it Shakespeare who said when strangers do meet in far-off lands, they should ere long see each other again? Shakespeare never said that. How do you know? It's terrible. You just made it up. Well, it sounds right. You going to call me? Are you in the book? Well, Charles is. Is there only one Charles Lampert? Hmm. Lord, I hope so. Yeah, it's got it's got almost like a screwball com- uh, comedy aspect to it, and not only in like the way that they have this back and forth, but also like that uh, some of the other characters, like especially the three characters played by James yeah. Coburn and George Kennedy and um, uh, uh, what's his face from West Side Story, they're they're all kind of like caricatures. They're presented as very broad, kind of cartoony, yes, kind of characters. And I also love Walter Matthau in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. I think Matthew and Hepburn have great scenes together, too. Yeah. Like, they're like, like it's, it's the, it's the age, or, oh, I'd be a great spy. Agent. Mm-hmm. Agent, Miss Lampert. Agent. And then the next scene, it's like, 
he says spy and she says agent or whatever. Like it's, they ha- they have a good back and forth. Um, Matt Dow, always an underrated actor to me. Like, in so many, gr- you forget how many great films the man was in. Like, everyone just, all people all right, just knows him from Grumpy Old Men or whatever. But, like, <laughs> the man did f- fantastic films, great performances. Yeah, and this one, like, Donnan's, like, the way he handles the tone, it's like, I mean, they, they kind of compare it, like, it's a great, it's a really kind of a great premise mm-hmm. of, like, the setup for a movie. And uh, Jonathan Demme would later remake it as, like, a straight, like, thriller, I believe, The Truth About Charlie, uh, and it didn't go too well. And they say it's, like, one of Demme's, like, worst films. Yeah, well, I think the key here is Donnan, but also, like you said, Hepburn. Oh, it's Grant and Hepburn, and yeah. And Grant, but but especially Hepburn is the, the way this movie is presented is like, yes, she's in a very serious situation, but she is like, she, I don't I don't even know how to, she, she's someone who's very, she can see the humor in things. And, and yeah. she's always kind of cracking jokes, even though her life is in danger. And like, you can see that she's being kind of, mentally exhausted by how many times you know the situation around her is changing but she's always got kind of a one-liner or a joke to go with it and uh and so she she plays it so well although i do have to say as far as movies about audrey hepburn's dead husband's criminal uh counterparts coming after her to get a secret package that he left for her this is this is my my second favorite film within that genre is 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 wait until dark the first wait one? until that, dark i yeah, love wait. that movie i <laughs> love that movie yeah i would love to talk about wait until dark one day on this podcast <laughs> um but yeah it's uh do you think charades underrated in, in the grant catalog and in the in the hepburn catalog yeah i think it i i i do think it should be remembered a little bit more than it is i, I think it's got a great you know, I think people people who have seen it do love it. But yeah, they've got incredible chemistry uh, and really fun. Yeah, really fun movie. It handles the thriller aspects really well. It handles the comedic aspects very well. It's uh, yeah, I think it does deserve more of a legacy than being than sometimes being viewed as this like Hitchcock knockoff. I agree with that. I mean, we're on Letterboxd is actually uh, Grant's third most popular film, oh. which is which is interesting. Behind, can you guess the two films that are above this movie? North by Northwest? Yep. Philadelphia Story? No. Oh, is it Phil- To Catch a Thief? No, not To Catch a Thief. Is it Bring Up Baby? Notorious, number two. Uh, Philadelphia Story is number seven. Um, Damn, Letterboxd. Which, which is weird. Uh, anyway, so no, I think Charade, I think I think the the score by uh, Henry Mancini is, is really good. Mm-hmm. Um. I think uh, I think again Don's visuals 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 are really good. I think he handles the the tone well. I, I, the tone because the tone there's so much so much happening to me with the romance and the thriller and the comedy and the mystery. Like it could really go bad, and I think mm. Donnan handles it really well. But I, I agree with you is that he has Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in the two leads, and I mean he I, I think uh, we might bring up later, but and it's like oscar speech that he gave when he won his lifetime achievement award he's like it's very easy when you hire great people it's kind of mm-hmm. kind of thing and there's that's one of the knocks towards him by some critics is that they feel that he wasn't a great director he just knew how to spot talent and how to use talent but i think that's a great director yeah that's like part I, of it. I don't think that's a, a knock but it's the knock of like oh he's not a true auteur which is fine he doesn't have to be a true auteur 
but he knows how to put together a good movie. You know, I can't help feeling rather sorry for Scobie. Wouldn't it be nice if we were like that? What, like Scobie? No, Gene Kelly. You remember when he danced down here by the river in America and in Paris without a care in the world? Hmm. You know, this is good. Want some? Uh. Oh. No, thank you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and I guess you don't, do you? I'm sorry. Alex, I'm scared. Yes, I know. I can't think of any reason why he was killed. Well, perhaps someone thought the four shares were too many. What makes you think that this someone is going to be satisfied with three? He wants it all, Alex. That means we're in his way, too. That's right. We've got to do something. I mean, any minute now, we could be assassinated. Would you do anything like that? What, assassinate someone? No, swing down from there on a rope to save the woman you love. Like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, huh? Oh, who put that there? And speaking of good movies, let's go two for the road. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling Thomas doesn't like this movie. I'm just going to say that now um, before we dive into it. So two for the road. Uh, stars Audrey Hepburn, the third film that she did with Stanley Donnan, and also stars Albert Finney. And it's kind of this, it's a road trip movie about these two lovers uh, who meet on who meet on the road when traveling through uh, Europe uh, when they're younger. But the the kind of the big thing about this movie is that it hops around in time. So you're seeing this couple through like four or five different spots in their relationship for mm-hmm. when they first meet, when they first get married, when they uh, had their kid for that, when, when they're on traveling with their kid, and then also when they're older and mature and kind of depressed with the the marriage they're in, the rut they're in, and you're seeing kind of the different cycles of a marriage. And it's all kind of cut non-linearly in a nonlinear fashion is how it's cut to where you're hopping to and from these different moments in time. And I, I think it's uh editing wise, it's, it's crazy of what they're doing, specifically at the time it's 1967. So it's a year, it's the same year as Bonnie and Clyde. It's very much a, a, a changing of the guard, I guess you could say um, in Hollywood. Um, and he is one of those, this movie is kind of one of those that is coming out at the time that's very influenced by the European uh, movements, like the French New Wave. And it's kind of like replicating what's happening there. So Thomas had never seen this before. And I was worried to see what, I was uh, interested to see what Thomas was going to say. Uh, and I'm still very worried about it. Because uh, I love this film. Uh, but Thomas, what are your thoughts on Two for the Road? Um oddly enough uh this is a situation where it, it's something i watched this movie and I, I formed my thoughts on it and then i was like i wonder what what some critics have to say about it which there are some critics who absolutely love it roger ebert yeah uh definitely loved it but i looked up our old friend pauline kale and this is a rare instance where i think pauline kale and i agree uh in that the, the, this is very competently made and it's i can see what they're going for Mm-hmm. which is to kind of contrast this old Hollywood rom-com style with yeah a, a real modern for the time look at, at what couples go through. Uh, but I think the, the fatal flaw of this film, and not to say that it dooms it to being a bad film, I just think the thing holding this movie back is that Audrey Hepburn is 
acting circles around Albert Finney in this movie. <laughs> and the script, the script is not doing his character any favors. He's kind of presented as this like pig-headed man, and and Audrey Hepburn is taking what she's given with this character, and and I, I that that's my problem is, is like I don't think this movie is meant to be presented as one-sided. I think it's meant to be this like open view of love and marriage and a relationship, yeah. but but just like she's so endearing in this role, and and the way that Finney is playing this, he's also and, and Kayleen mentions this like she was a seasoned veteran at this point. I think he had yeah. been acting in film for like eight years at this point when this movie came out she was like he's a relative newcomer and he's just, he's not given much to do with this character but that he's an asshole from from the start yeah. <laughs> and it's it's kind of hard to see like what she even sees in him but and and so i think it it ultimately yes i, I i'm glad that i watched it uh-huh. But I think the the thing that that like held me back on it was that it's just it feels so one sided towards her because she is so charming in this movie and you just want the best for her, which for most of this movie just means getting away from him, which is not what I think the movie's always trying. <laughs> it is trying to say it at some points in the movie, but yeah. it's it's not always trying to say that. And and not to I'm not trying to 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 bash Albert Finney, He's a fantastic actor was in one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh. But yeah, it's just that the script's not doing his character many favors in the first place. And I just think kind of the the performance that he went with is what holds this back ultimately. Interesting. So uh, to go with that, I wasn't going to bring this up, but since you brought you brought a, a few things that Donna actually says in the book, because um, I, I love this film, I think just I, and also too, I tend to like stuff more if just like it's pushing the boundaries of film in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think this film in terms of how it's edited in terms of how it's told, I think is, is astonishing on the performance of Albert Finney. I do agree. He is the lesser of the two. So in the book, um, Donnan says it did come out a little one-sided actual mm-hmm. quote in the, <laughs> in the book. Uh, two for road is not meant to be as damn as it is. If you read the script, you won't get the same feeling. The husband and wife are supposed to be equally responsible for the difficulties of the marriage. And the story is supposed to be about what happens to people when they become too familiar with each other's habits. Albie, Albert Finney, doesn't like to play anything charming. (laughs) He doesn't think he's acting in spite of the fact that in Tom Jones, he was completely charming. I don't know. Maybe it was me. Maybe I couldn't communicate to him because he wanted to be more difficult as that man. And that tipped the movie a little. Mm Mm-hmm. So he agrees, essentially, with what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that he sees it. <laughs> um, but it it's weird, because we showed this movie at um, one of our, our brief screenings at Sideshow Books in, 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 Holly, in Los Angeles, and very well received. And I think it might just because of the style of the film. I think the style mm-hmm. is so different for the era specifically because like, it's an Audrey Hepburn movie and Hepburn's known to be kind of the old school, not nah, this I mean kind of at this point, but like the old Hollywood actress in a way at this point. And she's in this very boundary pushing film in terms of visually. Um, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I get the Finney uh, uh, take, but I also just think it really paints an interesting po- picture of a marriage and a relationship between two people. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing, seeing Hepburn in something like this is, is kind of like seeing 
uh, Natalie Wood and like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. I agree completely. Yeah, I agree completely. It's very much it's it's playing into her persona some, but still just very different than what she had done previously. Mm. And I, I think Hepburn sometimes. I mean, I don't know if I would say Hepburn's underrated as an actress. I think sometimes she's seen in like the Marilyn Monroe thing of just like an image an sometimes icon. Yeah. an icon. And I think she gets, uh, she doesn't get as much credit with movie with like her performance in this, with her performance in wait until dark, which is released the same year. Um, I, I think some people knock how difficult it is to be a movie star. Does that like, cause personas are, are something that's very different than acting. And mm. some people think like, Oh, you're just being yourself, but it's, it's a very well-crafted thing to have a persona. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think she does. I mean, I think Hepburn is amazing. I've always loved Audrey Hepburn. And anyway, but I said, I think if you haven't seen two for the road, definitely check it out. I think it will definitely prompt some feeling for the film. I think mm-hmm. for sure. Love it or hate yeah. it as my five star review and your, your buddy's half star review. <laughs> it could be either yeah. or who knows where yeah. are you at star wise where do you think you're at like three and a half um, it's probably like three yeah three and a half three and a half that's fine i I'll, appreciate I'll... what they were going for and i i, I knowing now that that donan kind of recognizes where they fell short yeah makes me feel better about it since when is this car got only two speeds 110 and stop i'll tell you what do you drive i'll tell you what i'll walk okay what come on joe don't be silly You'd be far better off on your own, wouldn't you? Oh, not again. Joanna! You want to get on, I know. Maurice is waiting. Let him wait. He's got you on a line. All he has to do is start reeling you in. Will you shut the hell up about Maurice? If it weren't for Maurice, you know where we'd be? Happy! Broke! Broke and happy! You want to go back to living in a cellar? You hated it. I loved it. You hated it. I hated it. I hate being at other people's beck and call. As soon as someone becks or calls, I just resent it, that's all. Okay, you run the show. You handle it. You worry about the house and the flat and Nanny and Mrs. Rathbone. I don't want any of them. Do I? Am I the one that wants enamel sports watches? Take your watch. I don't want it. I don't want anything. Why is it whenever you give a woman everything she wants, she gets so bloody-minded? You don't give me everything I want. You give me everything you want to give me. So those are kind of the movies that we want to discuss today, but I'll, I'll briefly go into a few last things. So his later years, Don would make his final film, I think 1999 called love letters, uh, a TV movie starring Laura Linney of all people. Mm. And that would be his last film that he made. Um, he was honored at the Oscars in 1998, 90, 98 Oscars, uh, the year, uh, Titanic came out, I believe. And he, and he gave a speech, but he has a very sweet moment where he does a dance and he sings cheek to cheek originally from his hero, Fred Astaire, um, Mm -hmm. at the Oscars at that point too, not long after he started, he, so Don had, I think five wives total during his life, but he ended up having a life partner for the last 20 years of his life with Elaine May, the brilliant Elaine May, uh, of the Nichols and May, but also a, a fine filmmaker in her own right. Uh, Donnan would pass away on February 21st, 2019. So not that long ago, Mm-mm. um, at the age of 94 from heart wow. failure, he was survived by his two sons, his sister, and Elaine may, um, at that time, 
he was the last notable director of the golden age of Hollywood that was still li- still living. Mm-hmm. When he passed away, several directors spoke about him. So I have three directors here. Guillermo del Toro said Stanley Donnan, a brilliant storyteller, eloquent, exuberant, a master of color and top crane choreographer. He had so much style and so much joy in him. We are indebted to him for as long as there is cinema. Um, Edgar Wright said, rest in peace, the great Stanley Donnan, some great, some feat to have multiple classics in both musicals, but also comedies, thrillers, and dramas. The biggest statement, however, was made by Steven Spielberg. Stanley Donnan was a friend and an early mentor. His generosity in going over his, his generosity in going over so many of his weekends in the late 1960s to film students like me to learn about stories, learn about telling stories and placing lenses and directing actors is a time I will never forget. He co-directed what some consider the greatest Hollywood musical of all time, Singing in the Rain, but when he left his partnership with Gene Kelly to go, go at it alone, he made his most compelling movies in multiple multiple genres. Charade, Bedazzled, which we didn't discuss, the original Bedazzled mm-hmm. does Deli Moore, and Two for the Road were my favorites. When visiting New York, I will miss not bumping into him on daily walks and hear him talking about life and film, which for Stanley were inseparable. So... Not like we've talked about a lot of directors there and there's usually always like this big outpouring for someone. He didn't have a lot, but Mm -hmm. those are three fairly big directors that I think really wanted to state why he was such an influence to them and to cinema as a whole. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of his career before that's kind of his career, a lasting impact. And we'll go into our final questions a bit, but so his stats on this. So what do you think is his most popular three films? Singing in the rain. Yep. Charade? Yep, number two. And uh, I don't know about the third. Uh, On the Town? That's number four. Funny Face, number three. Ooh. Somewhat surprising. Uh, It's Always Fair Weather uh, is eighth on his list, which is very surprising. Hmm. Let's see, what was next? Okay, highest or highest rated? Singing in the Rain. Number one, yeah. Charade. Number two, yes. And not Funny Face. Not funny face. That's number five. Uh, on the town. That no, that's number six. Oh, what's this? What, what is it for this one? Two for the road, number three. Okay. There you go. And it's Not always a lot fair of Pauline w- Kale readers out yeah, there. It's all and it's always fair weather is number four. Uh, so I said we covered we covered his 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 most of his biggest ones. Um, but as I said, he has twenty eight films. Um, if you like some of his stuff, because I'm still trying to go through all the stuff as well. Uh, Bedazzled being one. Indiscreet is another one that has a has a decent fo- or a decent reviews when it came out, starring Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman. Um, he also did the a film adaptation of Damn Yankees and Pajama Game, as we said. Um, just a lot of great films. Worked for so many decades. It's so crazy to think that he started off at such a young age directing his first film at 25. Um, so, final questions for Donnan: uh, Is Donnan an auteur? That's that's an interesting one because he's 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 had so many kind of different lives as far as genre and and, and I don't know. I don't know there. I, I don't think he was someone I was, I will say this. I don't think he was someone that was concerned with any kind of consistency throughout his career. I agree. Yeah, probably to to our benefit, um, you know, as far as the films that we did receive. I think I think in terms of the traditional definition of an auteur. I would say he is not, but yeah. I, I would also say he actively tried not to be. Mm-hmm. Um, cause as he talks, cause I think 
it's it's beca- it's probably because of that old Hollywood system that he he essentially like grew up in is the he's the musical doctor. He's going over to a Vincent Minnelli picture and fi- and adding this sequence to fix it or whatever or, or bring life to it or going over to this person's movie and doing that and never really getting credit. I think he kind of talks about in the book of how like you never know who all made the movie just from the credits. Like mm-hmm. there's some there's some great work put into it by people who never get credited for it at all. Yeah. So I think that I think he would he would claim not to be one. And I think, again, that's the kind of whole auteur theory that some people like to try to hold up the auteurs over other directors. Um, and Andrew Sayers, I think, was one that kind of said, that, oh, he's not really auteur because it was everyone else that kind of did it for him. But again, like, I think that is the I think that is the, the uh, element of a true director is they're able to spot talents and know how to use that talent. I don't think that should be a knock uh, on them. Uh, yeah. but, but going off that and going into running themes, what are some of his running themes? There's one big one that I noticed and that's his love of trios. <laughs> yeah. On the town. It's always fair weather, seeing in the rain, very, these three trio movies. And again, to, to, to bring it back into this kind of genre stuff, I think he really, in terms of musicals, I think he does know how to integrate and, 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 and include Kelly in this as well, how to integrate song and dance into the kind of modern world you're in a, you're in like a he in a Don and film you're in this interesting plane of reality and fantasy mm. is that you're not fully in either of them it's this little dream world in between where you're 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 getting senses of both yeah. um and this is what well, I, I, I know that this is a i mean this is a storytelling trope this is has to be like part of every film but it does feel like he's his a lot of his films have more of a focus on like um like someone who's grown complacent in the status quo being like shook out of it. Yeah. You know? If it's if it's Don Lockwood having yeah. to like change up his entire career or Mrs. Lampert in, in Charade having her whole life kind of shattered in front of her, even the guys in in Always Fair Weather kind of having to, you know, have, have spent ten years kind of doing the same thing in this one life event kind of shakes them up and makes them take a look at it. And like I said, that, you know, any writer will tell you like shaking up the status quo is, yeah, has to be part of your story. But, um, but it does seem to be kind of like a stronger theme in, in a lot of his stuff. Even two for the road. I would say even two for the road with, mm-hmm. with yeah, the exactly. older, with the older couple with the, with Hepburn and Finney as the older couple being complacent in their marriage and how in both cases they venture outside the marriage um mm. thinking that will help yeah i that's a good point with themes with directors you always wonder especially at this point is that conscious are they consciously doing that or is that just something kind of running through their their subconscious essentially yeah that, that might have been as someone who started so young that might have been a fear of his you know yeah he, he would become complacent as, at such a young age because i think i think early on it's like his father wanted him to to work at the dress shop and like run that for his life Mm. And that's not what he wanted to do. And so it's like he, when he left, when he left Columbia, South Carolina, bring it all back. When he left that. Yeah, no offense to any Columbia listeners, but yeah. I would not want to run a dress shop in Columbia. Columbia yeah. Basically, like once he left, he's like, yeah, my parents, I was going to come back like in a few weeks, but I never came back. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, his family, his, his parents are buried in, in, uh, in South Carolina. So like he, like his family all stayed there their entire lives. Um, but he was kind of the one that, that did get out like he wanted to mm-hmm. and did go off and like live a 
a long uh, and historic uh, life. Um, but going on to the last question with this, uh, how does Donnan fit into this genre? Um, I think him and Minnelli, which is why it was kind of tough for us to choose between the yeah. two, but I don't think we would have the modern movie musical as it stands without the two of them. Yeah. I think they were integral in, in showing and bringing over this aspect of the musical from stage and saying, Hey, these people are singing their feelings. They're performing their feelings. It doesn't always have to be a performance within the film. And, and I don't think we would have that aspect of movie musical as widespread or as recognized as something that can be box office viable. If it weren't for the two of them using their technical knowledge and their knowledge of like musicals and choreography and performance as a whole, along with uh, Gene Kelly, uh, yeah to kind of make that feel like something that can happen within the world of this film. I think they really made that, that conceit, like we talked about kind of the key conceit of this type of movie. I think they were the ones that really made it work. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to include Kelly because when you look at both Minnelli and Donnan's filmography, Kelly's in both of them mm-hmm. um, with an American in Paris, also Brigadoon, but also, I mean, I think he did three, at least three films with the, uh, um, with Manelli, the other film being uh, the pirate, which is an odd movie. <laughs> to have you seen the pirate? I've seen I've seen clips. Yeah, yeah, because well, we I think I showed clips. Up. Pirate is a, is mm-hmm. a, is an odd film, and definitely you talking about a meta movie. Go watch the pirate. But yeah, I think I think Donnan, Well, I think he did more so than than Manelli is he really figured out how to open up the musical. Mm-hmm. Like I, in the book, it kind of talks about. Um, how he's how he went when he he went to Broadway a lot growing up during those summers, and one of the plays that he saw, one of the musicals he saw had like a ticker tape that like ran across the stage when it was like showing like a change in time that mm-hmm. makes sense like it was like I think it was like someone with like paper doing it and that's why I came up with the idea for on the town with the time of day going by to show okay. the change in day so that came from him watching it as a kid. So like he really understood like how to take really take the Broadway stage and how to adapt it for like cinema and how mm-hmm. to show this passage of time and how to do montage this kind of thing. And yeah, I think at that point, like like now timestamps, that's a part of movies nowadays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like so many films use timestamps like this is the day or whatever. And I feel like on the towns, maybe one of the first ones that I think of outside of like the kind of silent films of like two days later or whatever that really kind of integrates it into the movie. Um, mm. And where time, again, a 24 hour movie that becomes a part of the plot. And there was probably more for uh, before that for sure. But I think he really uses that to uh, both him and Kelly use that to the benefit of the story. Well, all right. Anything else on Stanley Donnan you want to say? I think we, think we covered it. Did you enjoy your time studying his studying his? <laughs> I did. I think it's I think it's really funny, and this has to do with Manelli as well. But I've been so steeped in movie musicals for this past month, and so um, I... last night I turned on uh, uh, Schmigadoon, the new series oh, on, the new, Apple yeah, on Apple Plus. Plus. Yep, it's it's a blast. It's really fun, but it's just like an out and out. It's it's obviously a parody of Brigadoon, but um, but also just kind of like the golden age of Hollywood musical. Really fun. If you've been yeah. if you've been watching along with us this month, it feels like kind of feels like a, an answer to all these movies we've been watching this month because it's 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 a loving parody of of that style yeah we're i said we're in a musical we're in a musical renaissance 
I mean, every time I've been out with friends, at some point I'll be like, okay, guys, here's the difference between a Broadway show and a movie musical, okay? Like, here's how you structure it differently. Like, Brandon, please stop. We know you're watching so much. Um, but with that, concluding our movie musical genre, what did you learn from this month when discussing all this? You know, I, I thought I thought we were talking. I thought the line between a jukebox musical and a performance musical and a, and a traditional musical were all much more uh, firm. Yeah. And and it, from just kind of the way we've talked about it this month has really started to blur the lines for me. Yeah, uh, that, that's really something that's that's made me because, yeah, like even, you know, we were talking this this week was singing in the rain, technically jukebox musical. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, Moses supposes already may have already existed or singing in the rain may have already existed, but they take that and they they use it to illustrate what Don is feeling in that point. So is that a is that a jukebox musical or is it not? So it's left me with maybe more questions than answers in that in that <laughs> sense, but it, it has made me think about it a lot more than I ever thought I would. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the big thing that's made me think about is just the idea of if it's adapting a, a musical of what you do when turning into a film mm -hmm. uh, and the changes you have to make and really just the elements of a musical, how some movies that are musicals don't fully quote unquote musicals don't fully commit to a musical idea yeah. um, in terms of like what types of songs we have. Sometimes just we have four songs and that's it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, the idea of like how to, the 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 cinematic what you can do within a musical film cinematically and also just i mean with donnan specifically of just the the history of the musical and how it's all it feels like it's always been a battle for the director to be like okay how can we do singing without people being like oh god they're singing yeah like that's what it feels like everyone's like okay how can we tackle that so what so so with with donnan it's the like oh let's have them go from talking in dialogue and then all of a sudden go into song. But then you say, we talk about like the Les Mis or across the universe, universes of the world of the, like, let's have them record on set. So it feels more real and feels like it's not just a, a, this artificial thing that we're adding in. So that like all these directors, no matter how many decades apart are always trying to find that way to make that transition, to make that singing feel natural and realistic and not artificial, even though the conceit of it is artificial. It's they're singing in their regular lives. Um, mm. So that's been interesting. Um, yeah. What are what are some movies that we didn't mention this month that you want to briefly? Oh, uh, Cats. Um, you know, just I think an excellent example of of why this doesn't always work, and, <laughs> and everyone working on it seems so sure that it's going to work, and it is fascinating. Uh, you're doing yourself a disservice if you are interested in this genre in any sort of way, if you love it or hate it, if you don't watch that movie. So you're telling me I have to go watch Cats. That's what you're... Yes, it is. Brandon, you have to see Cats. It is <laughs> incredible. This whole month has just been you like, you should go watch Cats. You, know, you should watch Cats. Pitch. Um, some ones I'll mention real quickly. We, I mean, all the Fosse ones we've talked about before, so I won't spend mm -hmm. too much time on that. Um... I briefly mentioned Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Go watch that if you can. I think that is a beautiful film um, that is directed by Jacques Demy. And when you watch Funny Face and then that, it feels like there's a big correlation there. But specifically with La La Land, Damien Chazelle, 
Um, that's a French film, so you'll deal with a lot of French singing. Um, but I think it's beautiful. Um, and then I want to give one more that's not. Oh, Grease 2. Hands down. Gotta say Grease 2. <laughs> not Grease 1, Grease 2. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was I strongly contemplated doing an episode on Grease 2 this month, but I was like, I don't know who's going to want to listen to that besides me. <laughs> Underrated. Weird as hell. Also, like, like Cats. I think that's also an interesting one to look at of just terms like how not to do a musical because the logic of that movie makes no sense. Like The logic of that musical makes no sense for Grease 2, but somehow enjoyable. I don't know why. There's 110 films, I think, on here right now. Um, but tell us your favorites. We want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, yeah. So that's that's our month on movie musicals next month doing something different very different we haven't done this before we've done a director episode for a month we've done a month of one director next month we're doing four directors it's gonna be difficult on thomas and and my's uh watching schedules uh yes (laughs) to get these but we've we've realized that we haven't done a lot of female filmmakers we talked about julie taymor this week this month with uh, across the universe but we want to kind of focus on a few female filmmakers that we love that we think need a little bit more uh praise and love as well so next month at the moment we're currently going to be doing episodes on deborah granick director of winter's bone uh karen kusama director of the invitation uh, Nancy Myers, director of countless romantic comedies, uh, including uh, Something's Gotta Give, but also The Parent Trap, also wrote films like Power of the Bride. And then also, then finally, uh, Amy Heckerling, who directed such films as Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless. So a big month ahead. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're gonna try to honor all these, these wonderful filmmakers next month. So stay tuned. Go watch some of their films if you can. Um, but that's all we have for you on this episode. That's all we have for you on this month of movie musicals. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Sun Nation Podcast and Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher, uh, or wherever you your podcast. And how already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys, we'd love to. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you're thinking of the show, what you want to hear from us in the future, and uh, you know, also get the word out to to your friends. You know, if you're digging it, let them know. And and tell us if you're Fred Astaire, Team Fred Astaire, or Team Gene Kelly. Uh, or Team Android Lloyd Webber or Team Steven Sondheim. Because uh, that is a big debate in the friend group right now. Um, and you <laughs> already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Yeah, man. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.